Like I said, I'm Kotz, and we're in a part three, I believe, part three of a series called On the Road Again. And we're going through the book of Acts, and the reason we're calling it On the Road Again is because the main character at this point, part of the book of Acts, the main character, his name is Paul the Apostle, he went on this journey, and he came back, and he's like, I'm going to go again. And that's why we're talking about that second journey. This is why we're calling it On the Road Again. And uh, we call this, we commonly call this the second missionary journey of Paul. So today I want to address a question, which is this. What does suffering for Jesus look like? And you're like, wait a minute, what? Suffering for Jesus? What, what, what does that have to do with anything? Like when I became a Christian, did I really sign up for suffering for Jesus? Now, let me tell you what this means and what it doesn't mean. What suffering for Jesus doesn't mean is what we commonly call persecution. Uh, I guess a lot of people call it persecution nowadays, but it's really not. Um, it's basically saying that, hey, you know, I think they took prayer out of schools. That's not suffering for Jesus, okay, because you're not being flogged and you're not being thrown into prison for being a Christian, right? The kind of suffering I'm talking about is that, that, that I'm trying to describe right now is not found in the Bible. When somebody says, oh, you're a Christian, then I'm going to treat you, I, I, I'm going to fire you because you're a Christian. That kind of persecution is not described for us in the Bible. And if it is, no one labels it as suffering for Jesus. So today I'm going to talk about a specific kind of suffering for Jesus that the Bible talks about over and over and over again. Okay, because lately I've been hearing stories about people saying like, oh, well, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus and the government's doing this. And so, you know, I'm suffering for Jesus. And I'm like, really, like if you compare it to the things that people experienced in the biblical days, like what you're going through is like a slap on the wrist. It's not really suffering for Jesus. So let's talk about what that looks like, because I think this is very important. And, you know, like I'll give you an example of what suffering for Jesus doesn't look like. Um, my son has been in Little League for the past uh, three or four months. And over time, as I'm sitting in the bleachers or going to practice, I get to know some of the parents there. And as we start talking, we eventually ask the question, what do you do for a living? And I'm always hesitant to answer that question because in my, let's see, 20, maybe less than 20 years of being a pastor, um, I've discovered that when I say, hey, I'm in ministry, I'm a pastor, they kind of back off. They're like, oh, okay. And they start rethinking all the conversations they had with me and how many curse words they use. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, sorry, pastor. You know, and they stop talking to me. So I really don't want to get to that question of what do you do? Because, you know, and I could say that's persecution, man. But that's not the kind of persecution that the Bible talks about. The suffering for Jesus is not the, you know, like if you think, you know, people are treating me different because I'm a Christian, that's not suffering for Jesus. So today we're going to be looking at a story that takes place. Oh, go to the next screen. That takes place here. This is Europe, Africa, Middle East. This is Asia Minor, Turkey, right here. Okay, and uh, I'm going to catch you up on what's been going on. So Paul, the apostle, he starts off from the um, the east side of the Mediterranean Sea, and he basically says, "There's two messages I want to get out to all the Jews out there." And if you were with us for the past few weeks, you know this story. The first thing is, I want to tell everybody that the Messiah showed up, because Jews, in their scriptures, foretold a Messiah showing up one day, and he's like, he did show up. He was a carpenter from Nazareth in, in, in Israel, and it's, and, but people outside of Israel didn't know that. So he's like, I want to go around the world telling all the Jews that are spread around the you know, Mediterranean Sea, I want to let them know that Jesus showed up, the Messiah came. The second message is just as important, which is, and here is a message that he showed up here to tell us. 
you know all those rules in the Old Testament, and all those customs, all those, you know, those Jewish rules and rituals? Yeah, we're not responsible for following them anymore. You see, because at the time it was given to us, which is a few thousand years ago, it actually played a role, which is it kept us in line. It made sure that we were separate from the world. But now that the Messiah showed up, we realize that those rules actually keep us apart from the world. We're not really engaging with the people around us because these rules tell us that we can't have meals with people from, like, people who aren't Jews. Or we can't, you know, they also have things like you have to get circumcised. And I think that's keeping people away from following Jesus. So the second reason, first is, you know, I want to tell the world that Jesus showed up. The second thing is, yeah, we're, not, we're, we're no longer required to follow these Jewish customs. So to tell that story, we start from here. Next slide. And Paul starts from this place called Antioch. And then he goes north, and then he heads west to this region right here called Galatia. That's where Derby, Lystra, Iconium is. And he goes to Phrygia, eventually gets to the coast over here of Troas. Now, if you're wondering, did, map, did, 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 did Paul map this out? The answer is no. He basically was traveling through, thinking he knew he was, where he was going, but then something weird happened in one of those nights, one of those sleepless nights, I guess, right? Because it says here that he had a vision. Next slide. It says, during the night, Paul had a vision. So we're not sure if he was sleeping. We're not sure what happened. But he had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So... Just imagine, Paul, I don't know if he's sleeping, if he's awake when he saw this vision, but he's like, he, he gets up and tells everybody, guys, I think I know where we're supposed to go. We're supposed to go to a place called Macedonia. Like, are you sure? Because there's less Jews over there. Are you sure you want to go more west? He's like, yeah, I just saw this vision of a guy, a male, who is like saying, please, come over here and save us. We need help. Please come over. So they're like, okay, that's good enough for us. So, next slide. They go from Troas, the shore right over here. They got on a boat. They go past Semothres, that's an island over there, and they show up in Macedonia. And they specifically get to this major city of Macedonia called Philippi. And this is where that story takes place. And let me just catch you up on what's been going on in Philippi. First, they go and meet. They're, they're looking for a synagogue to hang out because that's, uh, that's where Paul goes first. He goes there to because his, his whole mission is to tell the Jews that the Messiah came in, that we no longer have to follow the Old Testament rules. But he can't find a, a synagogue because you need at least 10 Jewish men in order to have a synagogue, and there weren't 10 men in Philippi. It's a big city, and there's not even 10 men. Instead, they found a gathering of Jewish women and people who weren't Jewish. And he said, okay, that's where I'm going to speak my message. And they receive it really well. And the first European church, which was consisting of women, is birthed right here, okay? And so today... The story starts off with Paul making his way over to that gathering again when he realizes that there is this slave girl that's walking around with him. He's like, where did you come from, right? And as it turns out, Luke, who is recording this for us, he tells us that this slave girl is actually possessed by a spirit, and maybe your translation doesn't say this, most in the original Greek does. It says that this girl was possessed by the spirit of Python, and you're like, what's the spirit of Python? Well, back then they believed in this, this cult that was, you know, as, as the goddess named Apollos, and you could look it up. It's a very fascinating story, but basically it's like this snake dragon who, if you're allowing the spirit to possess you, then you're able to predict the future. Now, um, something really interesting happens about uh, in this story, but let's learn a little bit more about this girl, this slave girl who's been possessed by this spirit, okay? It says this, that she earned a great deal of money for her owners, because she's a slave, by fortune-telling. 
And we're not just talking about like she made 100 bucks here and there. We're talking about like every day she would rake in so much money that you could buy like a house every week. That's like, this is how lucrative this was, right? And so Paul's walking around and this girl's following her and she starts muttering some weird things. You could tell right away that the spirit knows exactly who Paul is and the spirit of Python doesn't like what Paul stands for. So this is what happens. This girl, this slave girl, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, that's cool because she's doing Paul's job for her. But that's not what she's trying to do here. What she's trying to do is she's trying to rat them out. How's she doing that? Well, okay, this is what's going on. She's basically saying, hey, you know these two men, or these men, remember there's four of them, there's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, the writer of Acts. They're in this journey right now, okay? And in this journey, these, out of these four people, two of them are Jews, because remember, um, Timothy is half Jew, half Greek, and then Luke is not Jewish at all. So Silas and Paul are, are Jewish, and she's like, I know how I'm gonna rat these guys out. I'm gonna tell the whole world in Philippi that these two, there's two Jews among us. That's what, that's what he's doing here. He's like, these guys are not just followers of the Most High God. They're actually servants of the Most High God. That's, their, that's his way of saying, look, we have two super Jews here. These guys aren't just happy being Jews. They have to tell everybody about how they ought to live. Now, why is this important? It's because in Philippi and in the Roman Empire at the time, there was a high level of anti-Semitism. People didn't like Jews. As a matter of fact, a year before this story takes place, the emperor, the Caesar at the time, his name was Claudius, he expelled all the Jews out of the city of Rome. It's like, if you're a Jew, you can't live here anymore. And they kicked him out. And the people who refused to leave, they just took their property away, and they were homeless in the streets of Rome. That's the culture that we see here in Philippi. So this girl is like telling everybody, hey guys, 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 we have Jews here. So Paul gets annoyed eventually. He's like, just stop it. Just stop doing this. Like you're, 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 you're taking away the mission that God has given me. Stop doing it. And she keeps doing it. She's like, hey guys, these guys, there's Jews over here. And so he turns around to her and basically says, in the name of Jesus, that spirit, get out of her, right? This is exorcism. And so the spirit leaves her and now she's freed. She's like, oh, thank you, Paul. Oh, I feel so much better. I feel like myself again, right? But there are people who are not happy about this. The slave owners, this is what happens. The owners realize that their hope of making money was gone. And the Greek, the way they word this is that the hope of make, making money has gone out of her. Like the wording here implies that the only reason these owners cared about her is because she was their, their what do you call it, the cash cow, right? The golden goose or whatever you want to call it, right? It's like when they realized that she could no longer make money for them, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So what kind of accusation are they going to make against Paul and Silas? Because the other two aren't Jews, so they kind of get off of this. This is what they do. They brought them before the magistrates and said, and magistrates are the most important people in the city. They're the people who report back to Caesar, most important people, they're like the governors. Um, the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. And they're like, well, there's no law against being a Jew. We, we could hate on them and we could you know, kick them out. We could do whatever we want, but it's not a crime to be Jewish. Like, okay, well, um, well, this is what else they were doing. The second part of the accusation. And they are throwing our city into an uproar, which they aren't, 
by advocating custom unlawful, uh, customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Like, these Jews are one of those weird Jews, you know, that, that circumcise people, and, and, and they don't work on Saturdays, and they do all these weird things. Now, what's interesting about this is, remember, Paul was on this journey to make two points. Number one is that Jesus is Messiah, and number two is we no longer have to follow these weird customs. So the accusations they're making against Paul and Silas is actually, like, not true at all. It's like, as a matter of fact, Paul could say, um, we're doing the exact opposite of what you're accusing us of doing. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He's like, we're not one, he could have said, we're not one of those Jews that, he's like, no, 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 no. But as soon as they make these accusations without even checking to see if they're true or not, the whole town comes together and starts participating in beating these guys. Next slide. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. They take their clothes off. The whole, te- the whole town is beating them down, and they're beaten with rods. In those days, magistrates had two men with them. They're called the lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R, lictors. And lictors are basically two guards that hang out with the magistrate, and they always carried a, a stick, a rod, that's about yay high, about just a little shorter than me, and it's, about, it's, it's like a broomstick. And if you just imagine taking a broomstick and hitting on the ground, that's the force they would use to hit Paul and Silas. So they're like beaten, their, their skulls getting cracked, their backs are bruised, but they didn't just stop there. Look at what happens next. After they had been severely flogged, so now they're being whipped, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Now, if you know anything about Roman culture back then, about what prison guards did, Prison guards, what they do is that they had this rule that said, if anything, if these prisoners escape, then anything that was supposed to come upon them, any punishment that was supposed to come upon these prisoners are now going to be inflicted on the guard and his family. So these guys took their jobs very seriously because they're like, if we didn't do this, then it's me and my family. So they would do everything they can to make sure that there's no escapees, right? And then Luke gives us a little description of what the prison looked like. He says this, next slide. When he received these orders, the prison guard, he put them in an inner cell, which is maximum security. There's different layers. The inner cell is the most secure place and fastened their feet in stocks. Stocks uh, was not just meant to keep people there. They were also meant to inflict pain. So what the jailer would do is he'll take a leg and then the other leg and spread them as far as they can to a point where your sockets could almost dislocate. And then they lock them in place. And not only that, if you somehow managed to get out of those stocks, they made sure that the inner cell, the ceiling was low, so you could never stand up fully. So you're always crouching or crawling. So this is the kind of prison that Paul and Silas was put in, only because they were Jews, and that he ruined, they ruined somebody's capital, somebody who was making money off of slaves, right? And, <clears throat> but here, here's the thing, okay? Um, Paul and Silas, they didn't deserve this. Okay, Paul and Silas, they were actually wrongfully accused for being Jews. Nobody deserves this for just being a certain race, a certain ethnicity. But here's the other big kicker about this. What we don't know by reading this text, but we'll find out later, is that Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens. And Roman citizens, no matter if you're a Jew or if you're a convict, you are not allowed to treat any Roman citizen like that. So you could say, yes, I'm a Jew, but 
I was born in the Roman Empire, which Paul and Silas were, and they have papers to prove it. They could say, hey, look at this. I am a Roman citizen. You have no right to treat me this way. As a matter of fact, if you are a Roman citizen and somebody flogs you, somebody beats you with rods, if the lictors beat you, then those people who participated in beating you, beating a Roman citizen, will end up getting the same punishments. They will be beaten down, they'll be stripped, they'll be humiliated, and they'll be crucified eventually. So here's the big question, because now Paul and Silas are, are suffering, right? Why did Paul and Silas stay silent about their Roman citizenship? At any point of this whole trial, well, there was no trial actually, but at any point, they could have said, guys, stop, stop beating me, stop giving my clothes back, you know, stop humiliating me, stop with all this. Me and him, we are both Roman citizens. They could have said that and they would have stopped right away. As a matter of fact, they would have been like, we are so sorry, man. Like, please don't tell anybody. Please don't let this reach the ear of Caesar because if it does, our, not just our jobs, but our lives and our family's lives are going to be taken away from us. Would you please, you know, like they could have just done that. But Paul and Silas, they, for some reason, and we're going to find out the end of the story why, for some reason, they chose to suffer. They chose to not tell anybody about that what they were doing to them was wrong. Why is that? Because I know for me, and maybe you, who don't enjoy suffering, I'm hoping that's most of us or all of us, we would have been like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we would have stopped it right there. But Paul and Silas don't. And we're going to find out why. Okay, so here we go. Next verse. So now they're in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So they're in stocks, they're very uncomfortable, and they start having a worship service. And you know, these hymns that they sing, people think that it was maybe some passages from the book of Psalm. We don't know. Okay, these are just some assumptions that a lot of scholars make. We don't know exactly, but we do know that they're somehow celebrating and singing while they're really uncomfortable and wrongfully being persecuted. Okay. Let's see what else happened. Then suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And when we say everyone, we're not just talking about Paul and Silas. Remember, they're in maximum security prison right now. That means there's some big time convicts in there. And now, not just Paul and Silas's chains were loosened and gates open. Even everybody else, the other convicts, everybody else's chains are loosened and everybody's doors just flung open. Good news, bad news? I don't know. I mean, I saw Batman and when Arkham Asylum's doors flung open, it's like, uh-oh, goodbye Gotham City, right? Like this, this is something that like, we read about it, but we don't really think about it, right? Like, oh yeah, that was, that's bad news. Not just for the city of Philippi, but also for the jailer. Remember the jailer? If, anything, if any of these people escape, that's the life of the jailer and his family. So, of course, the jailer is alarmed. So he woke up, because this is midnight. He woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, why is he trying to kill himself? So there is one way out of this. Because, you know, doors are open, all the convicts are probably going to escape. So he's like, I'm going to just take my life. Why? Because there was one way, I mean, the jailer's life is now over, but there was one way to save his family, at least. In the Roman Empire, the culture was that if you did something wrong and you took your own life for it, they saw that as honorable. And if they did something honorable, then at least they will let the family keep the property, the property that they owned. So they're like, he's like, you know what? This is the end of my life. At least I'm going to be honorable and at least take care of my family as 
as my life is already over. I just want to make sure my family is taken care of. And then Paul, he shouts. He says this. He says, don't harm yourself. We are all here, which is interesting because we understand why Paul and Silas might stay. I mean, they've been suffering, right? But everybody else is still here. And there's a lot of theories out there as to why. Like maybe it's because of the songs they were singing or they heard them pray out loud and then the, the, the prisoners, the other prisoners were transformed. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us exactly why. All we know is that they stayed. And Paul's like, don't kill yourself. We're all here for you. Then the jailer, he calls, it's like turn on the lights or torches or whatever, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I know as Christians, Western Christians, we merely, our mind merely goes to, oh, he wants to get saved. He wants to go to heaven. No. If you've been following us through the book of Acts, there has been zero mentions of how do I get to this place after I die, right? Like this would be totally out of left field, but nobody know exactly what's happening here. Here is a scholar. His name is Bishop Stephen Neal. He says this, Salvation in the ancient world did not mean going to heaven when you die. And this is by no means how the New Testament writers used it. Like today we do that in the medieval days of, of Christianity. This is when people started equating the word saved with going to heaven after we die. Okay, so in this time in history, nobody had made that association. As a matter of fact, he continues, Jesus himself frequently speaks of someone being saved when he means, actually he means healed or rescued. So, Saved means simply rescued, delivered, or restored. In other words, this jailer, he sees all the doors fling open, and he's like, oh no, everyone's going to get out. He grabs his sword. He's about to kill himself. Hopefully his family will be okay. Paul says, don't do it. The jailer comes running to Paul and Silas and says, please, tell me, how do I get out of this mess? How do I get saved? How can, can, can you fix this mess, Paul? We heard you, I overheard you singing hymns. I overheard you praying. And for some reason, I'm just led to believe that, that you are going to save me. Now, let me take a quick pause here and make a reference to something I said earlier. Remember when Paul was trying to figure out where he was supposed to go next? He had a dream about a man in Macedonia. Scholars would read that and say, well, where does that actually take place in the story? Because so far, since he's arrived in Macedonia, specifically Philippi, he hasn't come across any men. And in his vision, it was a man in Macedonia who was crying out for help. So scholars take that story and say, wait, this is the first character that Paul actually interacts in Macedonia. Maybe this is the man that he saw in his dream, in his vision, right? So if you were to ask the question, why did Paul and Silas stay silent about this, his Roman citizenship? Maybe, maybe there's two reasons. Number one was to save the Macedonian, like, that's the guy. He goes to prison and he sees, like, that's the guy I saw in my vision. I need to do everything I can to save him. And then there's a big earthquake and the doors open. He's like, oh, he's about to kill himself. He's like, don't do it. Like, maybe this is the reason why I'm here. And this is the reason why I can't tell anybody that I'm a Roman. I just have to say, I'm a Roman citizen. That's all I have to say. And all this will be over, but I'm not going to do that. Why? Well, because at this point in my story, I need to be Jesus to the Macedonian. Well, what does he mean by being Jesus? Jesus was beaten down by rods. He was stripped naked. He was humiliated. He was flogged when he didn't deserve to be. 
but he did it anyways because he loved humanity that much. In the same way, Paul is saying, I'm willing to get beaten by rods, stripped naked, humiliated. I'm willing to get flogged. And eventually this will lead to crucifixion. I'm willing to even do that if it means that I could love on this person who put me in a lot of pain. If it means I could love my enemy like this, then I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. This is the kind of suffering that the Bible talks about over and over and over again. Not, I'm a Christian, and because my boss found I'm a Christian, I got fired. That's not the suffering that the Bible talks about when it talks about suffering for Jesus. It's a voluntary suffering for the sake of loving somebody else. I'm willing to make this sacrifice in my life if it means that I could love my family more. I'm willing to make this sacrifice if it means that I could be a good father or a good mother. I'm willing to make this sacrifice if it means that this friend feel less lonely, especially in a time of need. That's the kind of suffering the Bible talks about over and over and over again. That's what it means to suffer for Jesus. Not, you know, because I'm a follower of Jesus and they took prayer out of the school, oh, I'm so being so persecuted. In today's culture, that is considered persecution, you know, for, being, for religious beliefs. But in the Bible, that's not what they talk about. Paul was willing to give up his privileges, his comfort, and his rights for the sake of loving his enemy. And so Paul, the jailer runs up to Paul, please save me, rescue me, restore me, fix this mess. Paul inside his response, well, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, a lot of Christians will just read through that like, oh yeah, yeah, just believe in Jesus. The wording is very important here. The word for Lord is the word kyrios. That was a title that was given specifically for Caesar. Actually, Caesar had the title of Kyrios and Soter, which means Lord and Savior. And here comes Jesus saying, no, 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 not Caesar. I'm Lord and Savior. He's basically trying to replace Caesar, right? For this jailer, for Paul to say to this Roman soldier, from this day on, you need to put your trust, you have to put your allegiance in now in Jesus, not Caesar. You have for a long time have contributed to Caesar's paradise. Caesar has this image of what heaven should look like, what paradise should look like. Torture the people who don't agree with Caesar. That was his thing, right? And Paul says, you need to now put your trust in Jesus. You have to basically live according to what Jesus considers to be heaven on earth. You need to love the people around you, even the people who are Jews. Because I know you guys don't like, you guys love to hate on Jews. Well, from this day on, you need to love on them. Love on people who are different than you. Love on people who are weaker than you. You are no longer going, if you want to be saved, if you want to be rescued from this mess, stop contributing to Caesar's world. Start contributing to heaven on earth. That's what I want you to do. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And how do they respond? Well, let's take a look. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. He's like, okay, I'm going to start taking care of you. You guys are my prisoners, but I'm now going to take care of you guys. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. This is his way of saying, my allegiance is now to Jesus. From this day on, everything I do is not to contribute to Caesar's world, but it's to contribute to Jesus's world. Now, what the jailer does next is really interesting. Because now as a fresh new Jesus follower, what is he going to do? Watch what he does. He actually puts his life in danger. The jailer brought them, 
Silas and Paul, and we're not sure if that includes the other prisoners. We don't know. But the jailer brought them into his house, which means they took them out of prison in the middle of the night. Shh, be quiet. We don't want to wake up the other guards. Come on, follow me to my house. And set a meal before them. A meal, remember, is a form of intimacy back then. He's like, prisoners, get out. Come on. Before everybody wakes out, let's go. Tiptoe over to my house. Sit down. Hey, let's cook something up. Let's have a barbecue. And they're having a meal. This is his way of saying, prisoners, I'm now your friend. I'm now your brother in Christ. He could be killed for this. He could be killed for just letting them out of prison, right? And now, not only that, he is welcoming them into his house and sharing a meal with them. What is he doing? He is trying to live out now the kingdom of God, where there's no more walls, there's no more division between you and the other person. There is no more us versus them. And he's like, now that I believe in this, now that I'm here to commit myself to living the way that Jesus wants me to live, I am going to invite these prisoners into my house and we're going to share a meal and let's see how he, how, what kind of response he got. Like, how did he feel about this? It says he was filled with joy. He's like, oh, this is what I've been missing out on? This is what it feels like to have a household of people who have different backgrounds, people from different parts of the world? Like, this is so cool because he had come to believe in God and he and his whole family he and his whole household. His wife is like, oh, this is so cool. Why didn't we do this earlier? Is this the vision that God has for the world where there's no more us versus them? We are so glad that we signed up. We wish we actually signed up earlier for this. This is filling us with joy. But remember the price that he has to pay for this. If the Roman magistrates, they find out that this is what the jailer is doing, he would be put to death. In other words, now the jailer has become Jesus to Paul. I'm willing to get beaten with rods. I'm willing to be stripped naked. I'm willing to be humiliated. I'm willing to do all these things for the sake of befriending my prisoners. So the jailer is now becoming Jesus to Paul, right? But in doing so, the jailer is also now experiencing heaven on earth. He's like, my allegiance is no longer to Caesar. My allegiance is now to Jesus. And now that I'm doing it, I'm experiencing joy. I'm seeing racial walls being torn down. And after they share that meal, Paul's like, hey, uh, jailer, sir, um, I think we should get back to prison because it's almost morning time. And if they find out that all of us are out of prison in your house, that's your life on the line. And the jailer's like, but, but don't you want to be free? It's like, yes, but we're being Jesus to you. We don't think your life is worth our freedom. So let's go back to jail. So everybody tiptoes back into prison. Into, and they put themselves in the stocks, right? <laughs> and then when it was daylight, when it was daylight, the magistrates, the people who are in charge of the city, sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. Now, why would he do that? People think that because of that great earthquake, they saw that as a sign, and the magistrates were like, well, maybe we shouldn't have put them in prison. We think that's what's happening. We're not sure. But for whatever reason it was, the magistrates had a change of heart. They're like, uh, let's get these guys out, right? So the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace, <laughs> right? It's like, hey, you're free. You could go now. But Paul, he's like, no, 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 no. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are, and he finally reveals it to everybody. We are Romans. We're Roman citizens. And they threw us into prison. Now, at this point, the whole room goes quiet. Because for the first time, the jailer, 
the, you know, the, 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 the officers, the magistrates, they all find out, wait a minute, you, you guys are Romans? Okay, that's bad because now everybody who's involved in beating and putting him in the prison uh, are now susceptible to also being beaten, being stripped naked, and being hung on the cross, being flogged, all that thing, all that stuff. So Paul knows in his mind that he has the upper hand now. So what he does here is he says, so jailer, my new BFF, can you tell your officers to tell the magistrate that if they want to get rid of us, they, the magistrates who are sitting on their ivory tower, they have to come here to prison and escort us like personally, publicly. So the prisoner, uh, the jailer tells the officers and the officers tell the magistrates, hey, uh, yeah, they're Roman citizens. And they're like, what? So they grab their jackets, they put it on, they run over to prison, and they start take, they escort Paul out and Silas out personally saying, we're so sorry, please don't tell anybody, right? And why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul using his leverage like this? It's because Paul at this point realizes that he could use this leverage. He has a sway. He knows he holds all the cards of the deck in his hands right now. He wants to use that to protect the new church that just started in Philippi. So this is how the story ends. So, and Paul and Silas came out of prison and they went to Lydia's house because that's where the church is meeting now, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, guys, you don't have to look over your back anymore. I, I had some arrangements and you know, everything's okay now. You can now worship freely. You can go and love your neighbors freely now. No one's gonna call you out because you know, we made a little deal behind the doors, right? And it says then they left and they go to the next city, and we'll talk about that next week. But the whole point of this story, okay, is about suffering. What we learned here is that Paul suffered like Jesus by giving up his rights, his privileges, his comfort, just so that he could love on his enemies. This is what it means to suffer like Jesus. Suffering like Jesus is not when somebody does something bad to you. Suffering like Jesus is knowing that you don't have to suffer, but I'm going to do it anyways because in the name of love. Because that's what it requires to love on my neighbor. And this is the message that the, the church in Philippi, Philippi took away with them. They kept on thinking about this. They kept on meditating on this. They were like, you know, when it comes to following, being like Jesus, it means to put yourself in a place where you're always willing to love your neighbor, even if it means that we have to give up our rights, our privileges, our comfort. And the reason we know this is because later on in history, Paul gets arrested again by the Roman Empire for a different reason. And when he's, when he's in prison, and he's actually on house arrest, the Church of Philippi, they do exactly what Paul did. They sent somebody with all the resources they could gather, and they sent a little care package to Paul, but it almost cost the guy's life. But they were like, we know what's on the line here. We know that by sending this care pack package to Paul, the messenger, his life is in danger, but we're going to do it anyways because we're going to give up our rights, our privileges, our comfort for the sake of loving on Paul. And Paul eventually gets the package and he writes a letter back. And he basically tells them, hey, the guy you sent, yeah, he's about to die, but by God's grace, he recovered and he's, he's healthy again. He's ready to go back and I'm going to send him back to you with this letter. And that letter is called the book of Philippians. And at the core of the book of Philippians, the main message that Paul leaves with them is this. He says this, this is Philippians chapter two, verse five. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The way I want you to treat one another, 
Be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? What does that look like? He says, Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, I am God, I have all the privileges in the world because I am God, right? He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Is there anybody in this world who deserves to have everything? Yes, that's God. Is there anybody here who could just snap his fingers and get what he wants? Yes, God. But did Jesus do that? Paul says, no. Why? Well, he didn't just say, hey, while he was on earth, he didn't just say, I'm not going to use my God privileges. He went beyond that. He says this, rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Not only did God strip himself of all the privileges and all the comforts and made himself into a human being, he also made himself a servant of human beings. He lowered himself even lower than that. But that's not where he stopped. Next verse. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Not only did he lower himself to a level of a human being, he lowered himself down to the level of a servant, and not only did he stop there, he even died a criminal's death that he did not deserve. He could have easily flashed his God card and got out of it. He could have been like, snap my finger, lightning bolts on everybody, I don't have to die on the cross for you. But he said, no, I'm going to suffer anyways because I love you. I care about humanity. I'm willing to take on the, the sins of the world. I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to suffer because of love. And Paul says, I want you, the way you treat other people, I want you to love others in the way that Jesus loved you. As a Roman citizen, I had privileges, I had rights. I'm willing to let that go for the sake of loving that jailer, the person who tortured me, the person who tried to remove the, my, my legs out of my socket. I was willing to stay in prison to love on him. And look at what happened. He is now a person who is, he puts his allegiance in Jesus. And now he's loving on his neighbors for the sake of God's kingdom. The message that Paul left, the impression that Paul left in the church on Philippi, and the message that he wanted to make sure that they got like deep down in their soul was this. They lived as if others were more important than themselves. And the reason I use the word as if is because we know that from God's eyes, everybody's value is the same. And you should know that you are just as valuable as the person next to you or the person you see on TV. Your value is equal. But the way that Paul lived, the way that Jesus lived, is that they lived as if the person next to them was more valuable than they were. That they were looking at their privileges. If they didn't have any privileges, they, lowered, they would strip themselves of those privileges so that they would be less than them, so that they could uplift them from underneath. And I believe that this message that Paul left for the Philippians is, wasn't just for the Philippians, but it's also for us. That he wants us to live as if the person who is next to us, the person who has hurt you, the person who, have, who, who has done something that you're like, that person doesn't deserve friends. He wants us to love on those people, even if it means that we have to remove some of the comforts in our lives. And that's a tall order. That's hard. And Paul has the scars to prove that, that is, it is hard, really hard. It's difficult. But he always looks to the cross and says, I'm willing to go through that because that's what Jesus did for me. When I did not deserve to be saved, to be rescued, Jesus suffered for me. So the question is, can we do that for our neighbors? Amen? All right, let's pray.